0: and turn to the book of Galatians. And as you're turning there to the book of Galatians, I also want to, as we did last time, find a place in Acts chapter 15. Because we're going to be going back and forth between those. As we look at Paul's relationship, not to the early church, but to the church at Jerusalem. And that is really, really important because the Judaizers were claiming to have come from the church at Jerusalem, and they were claiming that that church and that apostolic company had authority over the apostle Paul. And so Paul was going to try to prove, and he is proving, we're right in the middle of this, to prove not only his apostolic authority, but his independency from the eleven. Now, when I say independency from the eleven, I don't mean that he separated from the eleven. What I mean by that is God independently called him, God independently taught him, and he has this independent commission, but as far as the eleven are concerned, they are one. One in fellowship, one in mind, One in gospel, one in the faith. And so let's read, beginning in Galatians chapter 2, let's read the first ten verses. Note in verse 1, we have an interval of time. Then, after an interval of fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus who was with me, though he were a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretively brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace <clears throat> that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing also I was eager to do. What was happening in the region of Galatia is that there were, as we have labeled them, Judaizers. They were Jews and they had come from Jerusalem and they were entering into the churches of Galatia and they were teaching a false doctrine. In fact, their false doctrine was such that Paul announces an anathema to them because of their preaching of this false doctrine. What were they doing? Well, they were adding to Christ the keeping of what? The keeping of the law, which was embodied in this ordinance, and that was the ordinance of circumcision. In other words, prior to the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you were to convert to Judaism, not only would you have to go through as it were some rituals to convert to Judaism, but if you were a male, you had to be you had to be circumcised to enter into the people of God. These people were going <clears throat> and saying, "Look, we do believe in the Messiah we're claiming to be brethren, but we're saying it's the Messiah plus the keeping of the law is what brings you into the people of God. Now Paul's former background was exactly the verse reverse. They were saying, we believe in the Christ, but now you need to keep the law. Paul said, you got to keep the law, and I believe in a coming Christ. So in other words, They were in the exact same boat. But Paul was changed. What changed the Apostle Paul, who was then known as Saul? Well, it wasn't the traditions of his fathers. He was keeping those. It wasn't that the preaching of the Apostles had an impact in his life. No. What changed Paul? It was God revealing His Son in him. In other words, on that Damascus Road, as he was going there to that city to persecute believing people in Jesus Christ, Christ appeared to him. And in that appearance, there was a work done inside of that man. And what was done inside that man was what we call regeneration. Christ the Son of God, was revealed to him. No longer was he blind. No longer was he interested in a works righteousness. His righteousness became Christ and Christ alone. And he states that here in the book of Galatians. And then he says, now I want you to know that the gospel, look at verse 11 of chapter 1, that the gospel which was preached to the churches at Galatia by Paul in his apostolic company was not according to man, verse 12, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it from man. How did he receive it? He received it through the revelation of the risen Christ himself. So did he have apostolic authority? Well, one of the requirements to be an apostle is that you had to have seen Christ. He saw Christ. Was he independent of the others, or was he dependent on them for learning the gospel message? No, he was independent. Who taught him the gospel? Christ himself, the risen Lord. And so what Paul is doing, in which we're in the middle of it, is he is proving not only his authority, but he is proving his independency from the church in Jerusalem and from the 11th instruction. And so last Lord's Day, or last time we looked at this, we looked at Paul's relationship to the early church. And what we found out is this, that immediately after Paul's conversion... (coughs) Some three days afterwards, he began to preach. What did he preach? That Jesus is the Son of God. Immediately, he began to preach that. Then he stayed in Damascus for, the Bible says, just for several days. And then he immediately departed for the region of Arabia. Then, having been in that region for several years, he returns back to the city of Damascus. And when he was there, he was preaching Jesus Christ, and the Jews persecuted him and sought to kill him. And if you recall, the disciples in Damascus led him down through a window on the outside of the wall so that he could what? He could escape. Now Paul viewed that as a weakness in its humiliation of him, that he had run away from Jewish persecution. But regardless of that, he returns to Damascus, he leaves, he goes, and what happens? Well, we think that he headed to Jerusalem in order to seek a private meeting with what man? With Peter. Peter of whom Paul keeps calling him by his Hebrew, Cephas. He goes there and he stays with Peter for 15 days. And in that time, he saw no one else except for one man, and that man was James. So that whole time, or at least a major portion of that time, some commentators think that Peter wasn't exactly there, that he may have been away, that he came back, but he was there for 15 days. He had a private meeting with Peter. He James must have stopped by, but other than that, he, his face was unknown to the churches in Judea that were in Christ. So he leaves Peter. And he goes to the Roman district of Syria and Cilicia. And that district included a city that we're aware of, and that is the city of Tarsus. And that is where Paul remained. Now, <clears throat> in chapter 2 and verse 1, we have another chronological indication. Fort 14 years later. That's longer than what Bunyan was imprisoned. That's longer than what our young lady over here's life is. 14 years later, Paul travels back to the church at Jerusalem and knows what it says I went up again so this wasn't the first time he went there this is his what second time and there is 14 years now do you think paul's been you know on a recliner or a hammock out in the backyard no he's been preaching and he's been teaching to gentile people the gospel of jesus christ So what we know at this point is, it had been some 17 years since Paul's conversion before he went up to the church again, not just to meet with Peter, but he went up to that church again some 17 years. Now why did Paul do that? I mean, 17 years this man has been preaching and teaching the gospel, and who taught him the gospel? Christ taught him the gospel. Why did he go up again? Well, the scripture says in verse 2 of chapter 2 that the Lord Jesus appeared to him and told him to go back up to Jerusalem again. It's worded this way. It was because of a what? A revelation. And when he went, he took at least two other people with him. He took Barnabas. Now, Barnabas was a Jew. You'll recall that it was Barnabas who introduced Paul to the church at Jerusalem because they were what? They were fearful of him. But they also took this man. Chapter 2 and verse 1, they took a man whose name is Titus. Now, why is that important? Folks, it's important because Titus was a Gentile. So here's Paul. Here's Barnabas. Here's Titus. Now, this is very important. In verse 2, it says, I submitted to them who's the them. Well, verse 2, those who were of reputation. Who is the them? Look at verse 6. From those who were of high reputation. Look at verse 6 again. Those who were of reputation. Who were these people? Look at verse 9. James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be what? Pillars. Everybody see that? We don't actually find out who these three... Now, there might have been others. But what he means when he says those of reputation, what he's saying is these were men of influence and credibility within the church in Jerusalem. They were of high reputation. They weren't exalting themselves above others, but those were reputed to be pillars within the church at Jerusalem. Now, folks, Paul went up by revelation. And you'll notice in verse 2 that he appears to these three men and he submits to them the gospel which he was preaching. Where was he preaching this gospel? Among the Gentiles. Then it says in our New American Standard, I did so in private to those who are reputation, now note this phrase, for fear. Everybody see that word for fear? That actually, in my very, very weak Greek understanding, really falls short of what this Greek word should be translated. I would translate it with these two words, less somehow. So I would read it this way. I did them, I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who are of reputation, lest somehow I might be running or had run in vain. Now let me explain to you why I say that. I say that because, folks, do you think that Paul went to the church at Jerusalem to gain their approval? How long had he been preaching? Fourteen years. He'd been preaching for a total of 17 years. Do you think somehow, all of a sudden, Paul is unsure that he has the right gospel? What do you think? No. no. Who had taught him this gospel? The Lord Himself. Now, if there would give you any confidence to see the risen Lord and to hear His voice and for Him to teach you the gospel, I think you would walk away saying, I know what the gospel is, wouldn't you? So when he says that he's submitting to them the gospel, I don't think that he's there to gain their approval. He had gotten his knowledge of the gospel by revelation. Not only that, but if you go back to Acts chapter 15, Hold your place in Galatians. Go back to Acts chapter 15. And I want to show you something. Paul had been gotten by Barnabas at this point. They were in Antioch and they were preaching and teaching in that church. And the Bible says that these Judaizers came down and began to teach that it was the Messiah plus law. But what I want us to see at this point is this. In verse 2, the church decides to send Paul and Barnabas and some others of them. Everybody see that? If this is the same occasion that Paul is talking about, the sum of others with us, one of them would have been what man? Titus. And he's a Gentile. Now look at verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria. Now look at what they were doing. Describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. Everybody see that? does that sound like a man that's in doubt that he's preaching the proper gospel? No, No, it does not. In fact, what we know just looking at verse 3, when he goes through the churches and he's describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, what was the church's response in verse 3 of Acts 15? Great joy. What does that tell you about Paul's gospel? It was the same gospel these churches were preaching. Right? Folks, if you had a missionary show up here and you had maybe a convert, I'll just pick, let's say from the Philippines, and there he is, and that missionary gets up and says, now look, this man got converted to Christ and I just want you to know, he believes in Jesus Christ and he got circumcised and he's keeping the Mosaic Law. Would you rejoice? No, you would not rejoice, would you? So the very fact that he's on his way in Acts 15 to the church at Jerusalem, and he's describing the de- in detail the conversion of the Gentiles means he's not in doubt, and he's not debating whether or not he's got the true gospel or not. And when he describes this to the churches, they're rejoicing, because they're hearing the effectual working of the same gospel they've been preaching. Everybody with me? Now look in Acts 15. Look at verse 4. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Everybody see that? Does that sound like a man that's in doubt? Folks, it's one thing to say, okay, I'll fake it, but now we're before the eleven, right? Now we're before Peter, James, and John. Now we're before the elders of the church at Jerusalem. And they just went into detail about the conversion of the Gentiles. They're not in doubt about this. So what does Paul mean, as we go back to Galatians, what does Paul mean when he says, I submitted to them, I laid before them the gospel which I preach, but I did so in private to those who are reputation, and I say it should be this way. Do you think Paul did it out of fear that he had the wrong gospel? No. That's why I say lest somehow I might be running or had run in vain. Now, what does he mean by that? Folks, Paul didn't have doubts, and Paul didn't need their approval. So what does he mean? Well, folks, what's happening? There were people coming from Jerusalem, now follow this. People coming from Jerusalem purporting to be brethren and teaching to believers at Antioch that it's Christ and you must be what? You've got to be circumcised or you're not part of the people of God. Where did they come from? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And folks, they didn't have the internet and they didn't have a telephone. Heading back to Jerusalem, what Paul was concerned about was whether or not that church at Jerusalem was departing from the faith. Now folks, what if that church at Jerusalem was departing from the faith? Do you think that that would impact his ministry? Now think about it. If the hub and the center was rotten and was teaching it's Christ plus law, would that have impacted when the churches that Paul had started heard about that? Yes. That's what Paul's concerned about. He's not concerned, do I have the right gospel? He's not concerned, oh, did the gospel effectually work in the Gentile people and that they're truly re- converted? No, he's concerned that if the church at Jerusalem has departed, that it would impact his past ministry had run, and it would impact his present ministry. That's what Paul was concerned about. And folks, the truth of the matter is, is that if that church was departing from the faith, that would have been devastating. And do you think Satan did not know that? Why? Because, brethren, there were false brethren who had come in secretively. Do you hear the deceiver's planting of his people? Here is the danger as we go back to Galatians chapter 2. In verses 4 and 5, <clears throat> they're at the church at Jerusalem. He has submitted the gospel to them. And it says in verses 4 and 5, all of this was because of the false brethren secretively brought in now what were they brought in to do to sneak in to spy out our liberty which we have in christ jesus what were they liberated from what did they have freedom from keeping the mosaic law to be saved and their aim, verse 4, was to bring us us into bondage. Everybody see that? Bondage to what? Oh. The Mosaic Law. Folks, there were <clears throat> at the church in Jerusalem unknown. They're about to become known. But unknown there were so-called believers in the Messiah who were urging upon the church to believe in a Messiah law combination to be part of the people of God. Now folks, think about it, what we learned in Ephesians. Christ destroyed that wall of partition. Remember? But if you build that wall of partition back up, you're now dividing, right? Mm -hmm. And folks, where we see that, go back to Acts chapter 15. You'll see this in Acts 15. In verse 1, you'll see these people coming down from Judea and teaching at the church in Antioch. Look at verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Here's what they taught. Summary, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be what? Can okay, Everybody see that? Look down at verse 5. They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. They reported all that God had done with them. Now look at verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, do you see that? Stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of who? That was at the church at Jerusalem. They had snuck in, hadn't they? And, folks, this occasion here of Paul and Barnabas and Titus and other men coming from the church at Antioch, disturbed about this teaching, now coming to that church, that issue uncovered these people. And, folks, that is sometimes one of the reasons why the Lord will allow a church to experience trouble. The Bible speaks of this in Corinthians and it says, so that those who are approved of God may appear to you. Now folks, if those who are approved appear, who else appears? Those who are not approved of God. And so here, they come alongside. They just come in alongside. If you were to meet them, They would be nice people. You would go to their home. You would ask them, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What do you think they would say? They would say yes, and you would be welcoming them as brethren, right? You're confessing Christ rose from the dead. This is the Messiah. He is Lord. But what they don't tell you is that they are combining when it comes to Gentile people. Now, they had already been circumcised. But when it comes to Gentile people, that they have to walk after the pattern of Moses or they can't be saved. And folks, can you not see that they were desiring to enslave them again? Folks, remember Peter said, I think it was in Acts chapter 11, And when it came to the law, that it was a burden on them that neither he nor their forefathers could bear under. And here these people are wanting to bring believing people, perhaps the immature. And the reason why I say that is because if you go back to Galatians, what you'll see is they sneaked in. They were secretively brought in and they were sneaked in to spy out our liberty. Now, do you think they would have engaged Paul? If you say, okay, I'm here in the congregation, I tell you who I'm going to engage with this false doctrine, I'm, I'm going to go right after pastor. No, they went after the immature. They went after those who were children in the faith. They went after those who were newly being drawn to the faith. And what they were wanting to do was to put them back under slavery to that Mosaic law. Now folks, that caused real controversy. If you go back to Acts chapter 15 you'll see that it caused controversy at the church at Antioch. That these people, verse 1 said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now look at verse 2. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them. Everybody see that? The elders of that church at Antioch engaged the false brethren. Do you think Paul got shook Do you think Paul was moved by their arguments? No, he was not moved at all. But what they were seeking to do is to release them from this false understanding. So they engaged with great debate with them. If you look down at the church at Jerusalem, you'll notice that in verse 5, after that sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses, you'll see verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this manner. And after there had been much what? Much debate. Everybody see that? Now folks, I don't think that that debate was because all of a sudden the majority of that church in Jerusalem were turned into, would just say, I wonder if they're right. Again, they're debating with them, not because the eleven ever doubted. They're engaging with these people in an attempt to win them to sound doctrine. And folks, that type of thing happens today. I've not had a lot of engagement through my many decades of ministry. I had engagement with these types of people when I was in Israel. I've had engagement through other believers who have communicated to me about People who believe, I believe in the Messiah, but you've got to keep the law. And sometimes what these people say is that when it comes to justification, it's Christ alone. Would you agree with that? (laughs) But when it comes to sanctification, it's Christ plus the keeping of the law. Would you agree with that? No. I hope not. In other words, folks, what I'm saying is, it doesn't, you don't win the argument by saying, well, someone's justified by Christ alone, apart from the law, but we're sanctified by Christ plus the law. That's what's happening here. These people are seeking to enslave who? Believers who were already declared righteous in Christ, to bring them back into bondage. And folks, one of the reasons, as we go back to Galatians chapter 2 that I don't think that the church was thrown in doubt. I don't think the apostles were thrown in the doubt. I don't think Paul was thrown in doubt. I don't think Barnabas was thrown in the doubt because of the result of their visit. Look at verse 3. Galatians 2. What was the result? Not even Titus, who was with me, though he were a Greek... Was compelled to be what? Now, folks, think about this. Here's Peter, James, and John. Paul submits to them the gospel, and Barnabas is standing there. He's a Jew. And Titus is standing there, and he's a mm-hmm. Gentile. <clears throat> And Paul says coming out of that meeting that there was no apostolic commandment from Peter, James, and John for Titus to get what? Everybody see that? That's huge. Because these false brethren at the churches of Galatia, we're saying, we're coming from that mother church in Jerusalem, and I'm telling you that it's Christ plus law. Well, not even Peter, James, and John, who were people of reputation, of high reputation, pillars within that church, they didn't turn around and say, all right, I hear the gospel that you're preaching, Paul, but I'll tell you what, Titus needs to go out and get circumcised if he wants to be part of the people of God. They didn't do that. There was no doubt in Peter, James, and John's mind that the gospel that Paul submitted to them was the exact same gospel they were preaching. Everybody see that? Not only that. But look at verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed what to Paul? Mm -hmm. Folks, when Paul submitted that testimony of the gospel, and as he showed the result of that testimony, and Titus being representative of people being converted among the Gentiles, not only did Peter, James, and John not command Titus to be circumcised, but they did not correct Paul in any shape, fashion, or form. That's huge. Nor did they add anything to Paul's gospel, like, yes, but get circumcised, or yes, plus keep the law, right? They added nothing to it, they corrected nothing to it, And, folks, that church and those elders stood for the truth. Go back to Acts 15 for our last time. What we know of the results of this visit and Paul's relationship to the church at Jerusalem is that Paul did not believe this teaching. That it's Christ plus circumcision. Barnabas did not believe that. Titus did not believe that. Now look in Acts 15, look at verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to the brethren, said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to their belief by giving them who? Just like he gave us. In other words, they did not get the Holy Spirit because they went out and got circumcised and believed in a Messiah. They believed it was by faith alone, in Christ alone, and upon that belief they received the same Holy Spirit that they had received on the day of Pentecost. So folks, was there ever a doubt in Peter's mind about this? No, Peter did not believe that you had to be circumcised either. James did not believe that. If you go down to verse 13 of Acts 15, that when they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Everybody see that? And he talks about that the temple and tabernacle of David was going to be rebuilt, verse 17, in order that this might happen the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So folks, James did not believe in this Messiah plus law either, did he? Now think about this. You've got Paul, Barnabas, Titus, Peter, James. What about John? Well, John added nothing to Paul's gospel. Paul took away nothing. I mean, John took away nothing from Paul's gospel. And look in here, verse 12 of Acts 15. All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Those signs and wonders gave credibility to this gospel. That yes, it was also for what people? Not just Jew, but... Gentiles. And Peter himself would say, verse 11 of Acts 15, but what's the next word? We. We. Everybody see that? We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as the Gentiles also. Everybody see that? So John did not believe this. And if you look over or down the chapter at verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. They didn't believe that it was Messiah plus law. With the whole church, they didn't believe it was Messiah plus law to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And what those two men were doing is they were going down to be second witnesses of what actually went on at the church of Jerusalem so that they could stand and say, yes, what Paul and Barnabas is telling you is correct. So folks, as we go back to the book of Galatians... Neither Paul, Barnabas, Titus, Peter, James, John, the elders, or the whole church did not give way to them. Amen. So, what are these so called brethren from Jerusalem telling the Galatians? True or false? Falsity. The church at Jerusalem issued no command for the Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be part of the people of God. None. And was there any division between the gospel that was preached in Jerusalem and the gospel that Paul was preaching? Mm-mm. No division at all. Same gospel, same work. In fact, Peter, James, and John acknowledged the grace that Christ had given to Paul. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> Galatians 2, not only did they contribute nothing, but on the contrary, here was their reaction. Seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to what group of people? Uncircumcised. Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to what group of people? To the circumcised. Did they have the same gospel? Yes, going to different ethnicities. Now look at verse 8. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, was Peter effective in preaching the gospel and seeing Jews saved? Yes. Yes. But folks, that same effectiveness, that same power, effectually worked for Paul also to the Gentiles. So, did they have the same gospel? Yes. Did they have the same results? Yes. yes. And the same Spirit of God was given to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. No difference between the two. That's like Paul coming down and saying, case settled. <laughs> Now folks, this is important because as I said to you before, I have run into on one occasion a pastor who preached that there was a different gospel for the Jew and the Gentile. And this is what he preached, and I confronted him about this. He said that for the Gentiles, we're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, for God's glory alone but the Jew was saved by grace through Christ plus the keeping of the law. So this seed, this heresy is still with us today. And folks, it really comes to us in very, very subtle ways. Now the last result that we'll see from this Paul's relationship to the church at Jerusalem is given to us at the end of this. Look at verse 9. Recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me in Barnabas what? The right hand of God. Fellowship, and that they were that right hand of fellowship was so they could take that same gospel and see that same effect of God saving people to the Gentiles and they're in Jerusalem and they're going to try to reach you, the Jews. Everybody see that? Now folks, what does he mean when he says the right hand of fellowship? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean it doesn't mean Peter, James, and John are lording over Paul. Right? If you're lording over someone, you don't give them the right hand of fellowship. You just say, do it, we said so. Nor did they just disregard Paul as if he was some pseudo-apostle. The right hand of fellowship means we, Peter, James, and John, and that whole church, we have common fellowship with you. Everybody see that? We have common fellowship with you. Paul, we're recognizing God's grace on your life. He saved you on the road to Damascus. We're recognizing that you are an apostle. By His grace. We're recognizing that God's grace is working effectually in you. We see the results of you preaching the same gospel that we're preaching, and you're getting conversions in the same manner we're getting conversions. This was an expression that we are in unity and we are one. Hallelujah for that. Now this may not mean a lot to us until someone secretively comes in and starts teaching things like this. Because folks, in that church where I heard this pastor say it, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to people saying amen. I'm listening to a group of deacons who are nodding their head in agreement with their pastor. Now, some of them just didn't know. But it was heresy. And folks, there is something that the apostles contributed to Paul and it is this, verse 10. This is the only thing they asked of them. To remember the poor. The very thing I also was eager to do. Folks, they gave them the right hand of fellowship. They said, we're in unity. We're in fellowship. We're one. One faith. One Lord. One baptism. One Spirit. We're one. But Paul, we do want you to keep in mind the poor. Now, they're not asking him to keep in mind the poor all over the world. They're asking him to keep in mind the poor where? In the church, in the church at Jerusalem. Yeah. Now folks, I want to ask you, did Paul take care of that request? Yes. He took up an offering from the Gentiles for the poor at Jerusalem. He was eager to do that. He wanted to fulfill that request even though it took him a couple of years to gather all that together. And then he asked the Gentile churches to pray and told those Gentile churches, you are in debt to the believers at Jerusalem because that's where the gospel spread out from. And the Gentiles responded out of love and care for their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. And Paul asked them to pray because the reception of this was so critical. Because if the church at Jerusalem received this, that means that they are one in Christ. One member of the body ministering to another member of the body. Everybody see that? If they rejected it, that would be a division that might permanently rent the people of God. Was it accepted? It was overwhelmingly accepted. So folks, what we can walk away from this is this. And I know we know this, but it's good to be grounded in what you already believe. It stabilizes us. Our whole of our salvation is by grace. It's by grace. It's not by law keeping, whether it's my laws that I formulate in my own mind that we call moral values, or whether I'm trying to attempt some of the Mosaic laws and trying to keep them. Why is that? Because I can't keep them. I can't keep them. When you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, you know those? Paul says, there's no law that can produce those things. Now, the law can instruct us. The law can tell us certain things about the Lord. But at the end of the day, this is how we're changed. We look into the mirror of the Bible to behold the glory of the Lord. And we are changed from glory to glory. And we are given the strength not just to outwardly keep some type of laws. We're given the strength to actively be a changed person. Not to love at this point or at that point, but to be loving. Not to be patient at this point and at this point, but to be a patient person. Those things happen by the Spirit of God as we open our Bibles and behold the beauty of the Lord. That's a righteousness, which is by faith not a righteousness because I keep certain commandments hallelujah for the gospel of Jesus Christ let's pray